Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you having trouble with your cabinet scraper? Does sapwood in your boards give you the blues? Is there slop in your adjuster? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 54 of the show for August 7th, 2019. As always, before today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. If you're already a patron, again, I thank you. And be sure to head over to the Patreon post page to submit your questions and requests for the next patron Q&A video. So the more astute among you uh, probably realized that there should have been an episode last week, but uh, we were on vacation last week, so that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but you probably saw some Instagram photos of some chairs, uh, some pictures of some chairs that I took while uh, we were away uh, up at the lake. We, we went up to... Uh, to a local lake that that's not too far from us. They've got some cabins in the state park there. We like to uh, go do a little camping, a little fishing, uh, or glamping, as uh, as uh, some folks like to call it. Um, a little fishing, a little boating, and uh, and just kind of get away for a little while. But uh, they had some chairs in the cabin that uh, I thought were kind of interesting, and I thought uh, and, and kind of um, gave me an idea for today's podcast topic. So we're going to talk about that. A little bit more later in the show, but uh, for now, let's get into today's questions. So our first question this week comes from Don Hatcher. He says, I'm having a problem using a Stanley cabinet scraper that I bought on eBay. Often it seems to chatter and leaves parallel grooves in the wood. I'm a novice at using this tool, but I watched a video uh, with Paul Sellers sharpening and setting up a cabinet scraper and did my best to follow it, but I must be doing something wrong. Help. So um, not actually being able to see the tool and look at what's going on. Um, I, I can't say for sure what's happening, but I do have a couple of ideas um, that the number 80 cabinet scraper, uh, well, I'm assuming it's a number 80. Most of them are pretty similar, regardless if that's the one or not. But um, they're pretty simple tools. I mean, you've got a scraper blade, you've got the the body of the tool, and that's it. And you should have a few thumb screws. Uh, there's a bar with two thumb screws to hold the scraper blade in place, and there is um, another thumb screw to um, add a bit of a bow to the scraper blade. Um, my guess is that your the edge of your scraper blade isn't straight because you mentioned getting two parallel grooves while you're using the tool to me that says that the corners of the iron are likely digging in but before we address the blade um, make sure that there are no raised burrs or anything like that on the body of the tool um, that might be causing scratches. So take the blade out, take the tool apart, make sure it's all cleaned up. 
um, and run your hand across the bottom of the the um, the scraper body, the, the cabinet scraper body. Make sure the cast iron body doesn't have any burrs or wire edges or nicks or anything in it that could be scratching the board. You could even take the body without the blade in it, run it over the board and make sure you don't get any scratches. And that'll at least tell you that there's nothing wrong with the body itself. If there is something wrong with the body and you are getting scratches just from the body, then you need to address that first. Um, and you can just take a file uh, and a little bit of sandpaper and file down the areas that are giving you problems. Um, while you're at it, put a straight edge on there and make sure that the bottom of that cabinet scraper is fairly flat. It doesn't have to be perfect, um, but make sure it's, it's fairly flat with your straight edge. Um, once you've got the body itself addressed, then the only other issue can possibly be with the scraper blade itself. Now, I want to clarify something that, that often gets um, misrepresented. So Stanley um, originally sent the blades with the number 80 cabinet scraper with a 45 degree bevel ground on the blade. And the reason for this was just to make honing the blade a little bit easier. However, the cabinet scraper is still, what's, what's in there is still a card scraper. Um, and I have done this many times. In fact, my, uh, my old, I did this with my old um, Stanley number no. 80 cabinet scraper because the, the blade didn't have a 45 degree bevel on it. Um, and I didn't feel like grinding a 45 degree bevel on it. So I sharpened the blade in that Stanley cabinet scraper, just like you would a card scraper. Um, vertical, uh, not vertical, but but uh, a flat edge, 90 degrees to the faces of the of the blade and turned a burr on it just like you would with a card scraper. And that cabinet scraper worked awesome, worked just fine that way. So the 45 degree bevel on the blade of that cabinet scraper is not a requirement. It was a way for Stanley to make it a little bit easier to hone the edge on um, on the blade um, as opposed to, you know, how you would have to hone the, the edge on a card scraper, which a lot of people, for some reason, have a lot of trouble doing. So if your card scraper, if your number 80 has the 45 degree bevel, that's fine. Leave it that way. Um, you can make yourself a little jig that'll help you file that 45 degree bevel nice and even. But what's going to be important is to put a straight edge along the edge of that blade that's going to be doing the cutting. And make sure you don't have a hollow in the middle. Because if you have a, a hollow in the middle of that blade, when you put the blade into the body of the scraper and you turn the thumb screw to put a little bow in the blade, what's going to happen um, is the corners of the blade are going to dig in. So if you, if you set it deep enough for the center to cut, the corners are going to be cutting even deeper and you're going to get those grooves that you're talking about. So you need to make sure that the body, the blade of that scraper um, is either dead straight with no hollow in the middle or very, very slightly cambered um, where the corners of the blade are slightly below the center of the blade. Either one of those cases will work. But if the edge of that blade is concave, it's not going to work. You're going to get the corners of the blade digging in, and that's going to give you those parallel tracks or parallel grooves that you're talking about. So that's what I think most likely is the problem. Once you have the blade either straight or very, very, very slightly cambered, go ahead and hone it and burnish the edge very, very lightly. You don't have to, uh, most people press way too hard with the burnisher. 
um, whether it's a card scraper or a cabinet scraper. And that is 95% of the problem um, that a lot of people have with scrapers is that they're burnishing much, much too hard. You don't need to burnish really hard. Once you have the edge honed and burnished, put the scraper in the body of the plane, put the, the whole assembly on a flat surface. Um, you can use like a floor tile if you have uh, a granite plate um, or an old piece of granite countertop. Uh, you can put it on that, any flat surface, you know, put it on the machine surface of, of your table saw or your joiner or whatever. Just put the tool on that flat surface, um, have the blade in place and tighten up the two thumb screws uh, with the bar that hold the blade in place. You want the, the center thumb screw that bows the blade, you want that backed completely out while you're doing this. Don't put any paper shims underneath it. Don't do any of that. Just put the blade Put the blade in the body, put the body on a flat surface and tighten down the, um, the two clamping thumb screws that, that hold the clamping bar to hold the, the blade in place. Tighten those up. Now take your plane, your scraper, cabinet scraper back and start to tighten up that thumb screw that's going to put the bow in the blade. As soon as you feel it make contact with the blade, um, stop and try the tool out. If it's not cutting, it's, it, it may not be cutting at all, and that's fine because you're, you're, what you're doing is you're setting this blade up um, so that it's basically flush with the bottom of the plane body, of the, the body of the cabinet scraper, and that's what you want. Then, if it's not cutting, give that thumb screw a quarter to a half a turn so that it starts to put a little bit of a bow uh, in that scraper blade because not only is it going to put a bow in that scraper blade, it's going to cause it to actually um, deepen the cut. So it, it seems counterintuitive, like how could that thumb screw deepen the cut, but it does. Just trust me when I say it does. So just put a quarter to a half a turn on that thumb screw and try it again and see how it, how it does. Um, you shouldn't need to put more than a turn, one to, one to two turns max on that thumb screw. If you're, if you're having to crank down on that center thumb screw, something is not set up right. Something is wrong with your blade. Uh, with the edge of your blade. A lot of people will put uh, like pieces of paper, paper shims underneath the body of the cabinet scraper so that the blade projects below the scraper. Um, I don't typically do that because usually I want that cabinet scraper to take a pretty fine cut. If you want it to take a heavier cut, then you can um, space the plane body up with like a sheet of paper um, and, and set the blade that way. But I would say if you're looking to take nice thin shavings and not to get the corners digging in, um, do it with the without putting any paper underneath the, the body of the cabinet scraper. And s that way you're going to set the blade flush with the bottom of the cabinet scraper and only use that thumb screw to adjust the depth. Give that a try and see if that works. I think that might help get rid of the tracks that you're talking about. Uh, that along with making sure the edge of the scraper blade is perfectly straight or slightly cambered, but definitely not hollow. Our next question comes from Dave Chalice. Dave says, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about sapwood versus heartwood in relation to wood selection. I originally thought that the two were just an aesthetic choice, but I've also heard that they can stain differently, have different hardness, different movement, color differently with age, etc. Does this differ by wood species as well? Is it generally best to try to avoid combining the two in a project? So the first thing I would say is that um, 
the the primary thing about Heartwood and Sapwood is that it is primarily an aesthetic choice. The other things are are minor. Um, so when you say when you ask, is it generally best to try to avoid combining the two in a project? Um, I would say no. In most cases, it's not best. Uh, it's an aesthetic choice. If the sapwood looks okay to you um, and you can incorporate it into your project, go for it. Um, you can, you know, not waste as much wood that way. Um, if the sapwood really offends you, the, the look of the sapwood really offends you, um, then, you know, cut it out and you'll have to waste some of that sapwood and, and use more heartwood. But um, for the most part, it's an aesthetic choice. With that said, there are some things about sapwood and heartwood. Yes, there, there are some little nuances there. The wood movement thing, I don't think, I think that one's a little bit overblown. Um, there may be a little bit more movement in sapwood, and that's really only going to be before it's dry. Um, the reason you might see a little bit more movement in sapwood when, a, when something's first cut, or if you're working with green wood, um, is because the sapwood is going to hold more moisture than the heartwood. The heartwood is dead. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's already kind of dried out a little bit. Um, not dry in the sense of, of cabinet grade lumber dry, but drier than the sapwood. Because the sapwood is carrying, that's the live part of the tree that's carrying all the nutrients. So um, the sapwood could hold more moisture in a green board. But once that board is dried, especially if it's kiln dried, the moisture content between the sapwood and the heartwood is really going to be um, non-existent or negligent. So uh, negligible, not negligent, negligible. Um, so, um, so I wouldn't worry about differences in moisture content between sapwood and heartwood if you're working with dried stock, if you're not milling up and sawing your own stock. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is that you are going to have um, difference in um, how resistant the, the wood is to rot. Um, sap, sap wood is definitely going to be less resistant to rot than the heartwood would be. Um, so that's something you're going to want to consider if you are looking at an outdoor project. Um, you know, if you're building some deck chairs or something like that, then you're probably going to want to avoid sapwood as much as possible because the sapwood will rot much faster. Uh, it's not as, as decay resistant as the heartwood is. So for outdoor projects, anything that's going to be exposed to moisture and the elements and the sun, I would say in those cases, you probably want to avoid sapwood. For indoor furniture projects, um, you know, treen treenware and that kind of stuff. Um, nothing wrong with sapwood whatsoever. In fact, there are certain things where sapwood is actually preferred. Uh, basket makers, for example, tend to prefer the sapwood of the of white oak or um, um, ash. Um, they, the, they tend to like to work with the sapwood better than the heartwood for weaving baskets. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. It, it definitely depends on what you're going to be using the boards for. Um, in some woods, the sapwood is almost indistinguishable from the heartwood. Uh, usually you'll find this in uh, lighter woods uh, like hickory and maple. Um, you almost can't, well hickory not so much, but maple, 
you almost really can't tell where the sapwood stops and the heartwood begins because it's all pretty much the same color and it pretty much stays that way. Um, so you usually won't have issues with um, different color, you know, between the sapwood and the heartwood in in woods like that. Um, they will take color differently. And they can be slightly different hardnesses. Um, and they, they will do different things as they age. Um, a lot of times the sapwood will will not darken as much as the heartwood. Um, but again, it all comes down to aesthetic choice at that point. It's really not a, it's not a structural issue, um, you know, and it's only an issue, you know, related to, to rot and decay when we're talking about outdoor projects. So for the most part, I think it comes down to aesthetics. I personally am not offended by sapwood. I like the look um, that sapwood can bring to a piece made out of walnut or made out of cherry where you have that color contrast. Um, if the piece that I'm working on aesthetically doesn't work with the sapwood in it, then I'll take the, you know, cut the sapwood off. Um, but if I can incorporate the sapwood and waste less wood, uh, then I'll do that because it, it does not offend me um, at all. So um, for the most part, it does come down to aesthetic choice. I wouldn't worry about those other things too much. So our next question comes from Scott Adams. And Scott's got a question about attaching handles to the sides of a tool chest. Hey, Bob, this is Scott Adams from uh, Lexington, Tennessee. I, uh, I wanted to uh, send you a question for the podcast. I, uh, I'm trying to wrap up uh, a Dutch tool chest that I started several years ago that I just never finished up. Um, and so I was wanting to put some handles on it. And I'm going to tell you what it's made out of. I, when I moved into the house that I live in, I had some old uh, pine shelving in all the closets um, that had aged this beautiful orange color. Uh, and, and that's what I decided to use. We were rearranging things a lot. We are doing some closets, and I saved it. And it started out as three-quarter, but it was pretty bent and uh, bowed and twisted. And I leveled it out. It, I, most of it probably ended up about five eighths thick, which I know is a little thin uh, for a tool chest. Um, but in any case, I want to put some handles on this, and um, what I would I would like to put on there is just some kind of Home Depot or Lowe's uh, flop down chest handles. You can get them for about five bucks or galvanized. Uh, but my concern is how do you attach them? Um, you know. It, how, are, how is this traditionally done? Is it done with screws? Uh, do you use clinch nails? Um, I really don't want like a, a bolt and nut coming through there when I open my chest. Um, so I was wondering if you had any suggestions about how to do this to be both secure and uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, You know, when I open my chest. Uh, thanks for the guidance. Uh, love the show. Talk to you later. All right, so tool chest handles. Um, I think, I mean, you can you can use clinch nails, you can use screws. Um, if you're going to use screws, I would use some pretty heavy screws, um, probably, you know, like 12s, 12s or 14s, because you are going to be lifting quite a bit of weight. The other issue you're going to have is that your case sides are so thin, that 
five eighths of an inch. So what I would do in that case is to put some kind of cleat on the inside of the chest to make it thicker. So you've got more meat for those screws to bite into. Um, when I, the last chest that I made, when I put handles on it, um, it was, it was an English tool chest. It wasn't a Dutch tool chest. It was a, my small traveling English tool chest that I put the handles on. Um, and I put the, um, the, the inside part for the, um, the drawer, the, the tills, the slides for the tills, those are Oak on the inside of, of that tool chest. So I've got three quarter inch pine and then, you know, half inch thick, um, Oak glued and nailed to the inside of the case to act as runners for the sliding tills of that tool chest. And I screwed through the handle from the outside and I screwed through the pine and into the Oak on the inside. And then I put more, two more screws from inside the chest screwed into the handle. So I think I've my, on that chest, I might have four screws um, in total in each handle, but they were turned um, turned oak handles, um, not the, uh, you know, the, the cast handles, like what you're talking about. So in your case, I think what I would do if it were me, since five eighths isn't a whole lot of meat to bite into, I would get some maybe one and a quarter inch long, um, long screws, um, and, and put a cleat, put some type of backing on the inside of that chest and you can make it look nice. You could even turn it into, um, like a, one of the tool racks, right? So let's say you're going to have a, a tool rack on the inside sides of that Dutch tool chest, maybe to hold marking gauges or something. Well, make that, that rack out of like three quarter inch Oak or something like that. Put that on the inside sidewalls of that tool chest and then when you put the handles on you can put the screws right through the 5 8 inch pine sideboards into the oak that's on the inside of there it's just going to give you a lot more to bite into so it just depends on where you're going to locate those handles um, but uh, yeah i would just back it up with something whether it be a tool rack um, you know or or a cleat for something you know you, and you may even be able to like i said turn that into a, a feature of some sort uh, by turning it into a tool rack or whatever. So it just doesn't have to be there just to back up the screws. It could actually be functional at the same time. I think that's probably what I would look to look into doing. So our last question for today comes from Mike Sibley. He says, hello, I have an old Stanley Bailey number no. five plane that I've restored. An issue that I have relates to the depth adjustment knob or the related parts. When turning the knob and changing directions, it requires almost three full rotations before the blade moves in the opposite direction. It does not appear anything is stripped or much looser than my other old Stanley number no. four, which does not have any slack when changing directions. Is there anything I can do to remove the slack? Um, so unfortunately, there's not gonna be much you can do. This is just something uh, that is an issue with old Stanley planes. Um, you know, they were, they were mass manufactured to have interchangeable parts so there's a little bit more slop in there um, the older ones seem to be a little bit more tightly manufactured a uh, little t closer tolerances um, as you start getting into you know the mid 1900s uh, the, the 1930s 40s 50s uh, we start to see more and more of that 
that slop, especially in the, in the ones made after World War II. Um, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do about the the slop or the the the, uh, the slack in, in that adjuster. It's just kind of the way it is. It's one of the things you know that you pay a premium for when you look at uh, the higher end planes is that that they machine them to much closer tolerances. The issue for the most part is the that there are two things going on. There's the fit between the yoke and the um, and the chip breaker. So the chip breaker is obviously, you know, that, that's the piece that goes on top of the iron and it's got a little slot in it that engages with a little tab of metal on the yoke. The yoke is like a Y-shaped piece that goes through the frog and the tab goes into the chip breaker and it's got two little ears that go onto the brass screw that adjusts your, adjusts your depth. Well, the issue is that you're, you've got some slop in that machining. So if you look at that brass screw, there's like a recess where the ears of the yoke sit in there. And it doesn't make tight contact with the ears of the yoke, um, you know, all the way around. So as you start to unscrew that, um, that depth adjuster, it, it has to then make contact with the other side of the ears on that yoke. And then the yoke has to move and make contact with the other side of the notch in the chip breaker. So there's all this play going on in there that has to and, and that has to be taken up before you can then make the adjustment. So unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do unless you can machine a new yoke or uh, or chip breaker or both um, to make all of those things fit better together. I think that your best bet is to just get used to having to, to make more turns before uh, it gets adjusted. So that is going to do it for questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions or topic suggestions for the show, Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfindwoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfindwoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form. So our main topic for this week is lear uh, learning lessons from bad furniture designs. And this was something that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was kind of inspired by... Uh, some of the chairs that were in the cabins um, that you know where we stayed uh, on vacation last week, and in all fairness, they weren't terrible, but you know they they did the job they were supposed to do, um, and aesthetically, I've seen worse. But there were some things that I noticed about them that uh, you know kind of clicked right away. So I thought you know using that as inspiration, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, and, and other bad designs in, in furniture as well, things that, that bad designs can teach us. So um, so I'll start out by talking about those chairs. And um, if, you've, if you've seen my Instagram, you've seen pictures of the chairs. And uh, essentially, there were a couple of ladder back, two different ladder back chairs. They were very similar. They probably came out of the same factory just, you know, a couple years apart. And they maybe tweaked the design a little bit. Um, so there were a couple of ladder back chairs and then there was a ladder back rocker, similar to ones that you might see um, for sale on a porch at a, at a, a um, popular restaurant, country restaurant. And I'll just leave it at that. So the ladder back rocker was similar, somewhat similar to those. 
Um, but I noticed some things sitting in them, um, you know, and, and it's, it's things that, that would be really great to, to kind of take away. If you, if you're a chair maker or you're planning to make some chairs and you sit in a bunch of different chairs and you kind of see not just what works, but what doesn't work. Um, and in the case of these chairs, you know, there were a bunch of things that I noticed like, uh, on the ladder backs, there was a, a distinct difference between two of them. Um, and they looked almost identical. And again, if you check out my Instagram, um, feed for pictures of the, of the chairs, there were two ladder back chairs that looked almost identical. They were the same painted, the same color. The seat was basically the same design. There were some slight differences and the back slats were a little bit different, but one of them had a, a if you measure the distance be, uh, at the, the back slats or between the posts at the top where your shoulders rest, one of those chairs was a full inch and a half narrower than the other. And it made a big difference in the comfort of the chair when you sat down in that chair and leaned back against the back of that chair. On the one, you could actually feel the posts of the chair digging into your shoulder blades because it was that much narrower. And on the other, it was slightly more comfortable because the tops of those posts were spread out a little bit. So, you know, something to, to, to take note of, well, wow, you know, I can really notice a difference between these two chairs. When I'm designing my chair, I'm going to go, you know, a little bit closer to this other one that was more comfortable because the, the posts were spread out a little bit more. So you can kind of get that idea. Um, uh, straight posts. So that the rocker, the, the back posts on the rocker were dead straight. There was no bend to them at all. Um, so when you would sit down in that chair, you felt like you were being pushed forward. You were very upright. You couldn't really recline in it. It made a 90 degree angle between the seat and the back posts. And it, it made for a chair that just didn't sit well. Um, so right away, you could sit down in that chair and say, wow, something is not right. Something doesn't feel right. Um, you know, these these back posts need a little bit of bend. They need a little bit of angle or at least angle to the seat and, and not being so upright. They just don't allow you to lounge. The rockers on the chairs were terrible. They were so flat, they almost didn't rock. Um, and now I don't know if this is... Uh, an issue to try and avoid lawyers with these these uh, mass-produced rockers, um, so they don't really rock because they're afraid of people, you know, falling in them or what. But um, they didn't really work too well as a rocker because the rockers were so flat; they didn't really move all that much. So, uh, you know, design again, design fail. Um, is the chair too high or too low? And I noticed for the um, the ladder backs, you know, they were a pretty decent height for me. I tend to be a little bit shorter. Um, for someone taller, they may not have been such a great height. Uh, but one thing I did notice is that they were very narrow. Um, the seat style was sort of a, a plank seat. If you could imagine, you know, like one and a half inch wide strips that were um, that were screwed or nailed to little support bars underneath them to form like a seat saddle shape. Um, you know, if you took, if you took a, a, a three quarter by three quarter inch piece, you know, three quarter inch thick piece of wood and you cut an arc in it 
And then you laid those wooden strips in that arc so that it created this somewhat saddle shape. And then those strips on the bottom that were creating the arc, you kind of, that sat on top of the rungs of the ladder back. It was kind of a weird design. Um, probably good for mass manufacturing, but, um, you know, whatever. But um, if you were to take that seat away, this the frame of the, of the chair was so narrow that the front posts would have actually been underneath, right in the middle of your front legs. And the, the front posts would have been digging right into the back of your of your thighs. Um, so right away I noticed, wow, you know, this chair would have, this design is way too narrow for, for the average sitter. Cause I'm not a, I'm not a huge person. I'm not small, but, um, you know, I'm not huge. Um, you know, the average person is, is probably, well, the average person is definitely taller than I am, but maybe not quite as wide as I am. But, um, you know, the average person would find this chair, I think too narrow and the, the front posts would be just digging right into the back of your legs. So the front posts needed to be spread out a little bit more. So things like that, that you can make notes of, you know, even when you're uh, in a restaurant or, you know, or browsing the, the, the kitchen section at Ikea or you're go walking through the store to get to, you know, the useful stuff in the store, um, looking at their furniture, you know, how can you improve on those designs? Um, Tables are another one that, that come to mind. Um, you know, if you look at look at tables and then look at the chairs that are pair, paired with the table, are the chairs able to be pushed under the table? Do the arms hit the aprons of the chair? Um, you know, that that's something where, to me, that's a poor design. If, if you're making a table and you make chairs to go with that table and you cannot push the chairs in because things get in the way, that's kind of a poor design. So you kind of, you know, you might want to rethink that a little bit. Um, do your knees hit the aprons of the table? Or, you know, are the aprons too too tall and the average sitter ends up hitting their knees or their thighs feel, you know, when you push the chair in, are your thighs real tight between your chair and the bottom of the aprons? Things to think about. Um, are the legs of the table in the way of the sitter? Um, does the table feel too high when you sit in an average chair? Then chair height is pretty well fixed for the most part because when most people sit down, um, in order for you to put your feet flat on the floor, that chair needs to be somewhere between 16 and 18. The, the seat of that chair usually needs to be somewhere between 16 and 18 inches off the floor for the average sitter to be able to put their feet flat on the floor while they're seated in a chair. Well, in those situations, you want to make your table at a proper height so that you know you can eat comfortably so that you're you don't have to lift your arms way up to be able to to eat at that table to be able to get to things on the table so is your table too high um, and is it uncomfortable to, you know for you to sit at that table because you, you know you feel like a kid sitting at the grown-up table where uh, you know you're sitting in the chair but the 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 table comes up to your chest or your neck uh, you know so things to think about um, what about pieces with drawers? Uh, piston fit drawers is always a fun one for me. Um, you know, I look at them and, you know, I can appreciate the craftsmanship and the care that goes into making a piston fit drawer where, you know, when you push one drawer in, the air pressure pushes another drawer out. But to me, piston fit drawers as, 
as much of a show off as it is of your skill, it's a complete, it's, it's a terrible design and it's a complete failure in terms of designing a piece of furniture because those drawers are ever only going to fit properly in that piece probably one week out of the year. Um, if you make that piece uh, during the most humid part of the summer, the hottest, most humid part of the summer, when the winter comes around, those piston fit drawers aren't going to work right. They're not going to be piston fit anymore. Um, you know, they're, they're going to feel much looser. If you make those piston fit drawers at the driest part of the winter, when it starts to get a little bit more humid in the spring uh, and certainly in the summer, those drawers will probably just bind right up. You won't even be able to open them. Um, so, you know, I always just kind of shake my head at stuff like that because um, that to me says that more thought went into how can I show off than how can I make this a good functional piece? Um, you know, I, I really I really think piston fit drawers are, are kind of uh, not very useful. Um, well fit drawers are a different story, but that, that whole piston fitting thing uh, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because they're really going to only work well when the environmental conditions are exactly as they were on the day that you made them and fit them. So, um, you know, to me, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, are your drawers too long? Um, this can be this is a can be a problem as well. And again, it comes down to uh, thinking about the environmental conditions and the humidity. If you make a traditional drawer where you have a solid wood bottom, the grain of that drawer bottom runs from side to side in the drawer, so that the um, the uh, the edge grain, the end grain, is on the left and the right of the drawer. The edge grain is on the front and back of the drawer. Well, that the reason for making a drawer that way is so that the wood can ex expand and contract. And when it does expand and contract, the drawer bottom expands out the back of the drawer into the empty space of the case where it's not seen or and it doesn't make the drawer too tight in the opening or break the drawer apart. Well, when you make your drawers, if you make them fit perfectly to the depth of the case and you don't plan for that wood movement, that could cause problems later, um, later on down the line. For example, you make that drawer, that case, and you make that drawer uh, in, let's say, November. And the back, you're using the back of the case as a stop for your drawer. Well, if you've got a, a flush fitting drawer, everything fits up real nice. When the summer rolls around and that drawer bottom expands, it's actually going to con make contact with the back of the case and it's going to push the drawer out. So your drawer won't close flush anymore until the weather gets drier, the seasons change, the bottom of the drawer shrinks, and the drawer can then be pushed back to you know, where it's flush. So you've got to think about that when you're building your drawers. Um, you can either make a shallower drawer and make um, put some stops in there and maybe put those stops behind the sides of the drawer but not behind the bottom of the drawers or put them at the drawer front 
put the stops at the front of the drawer so that they contact the drawer front and not the back of the drawer. Um, and that way you can ensure that when your drawer bottom expands, it doesn't change the way your drawer closes. Uh, and obstructions is another thing with drawers. We find this in kitchen cabinets a lot. Someone designs a new kitchen, uh, they, the rough plumbing goes in, they get everything done, they go to put the uh, the sink base in, or, or uh, is actually probably more of an issue, not so much in a kitchen, but like in a bathroom vanity, um, where you've got a vanity cabinet with drawers in it. And you go to put that vanity cabinet in, and what happens? The plumbing's in the way, or, or, or the drawers are in the way, however you want to look at it. But there's interference between your plumbing lines and your drawers. Bad design. Someone didn't think, you know, it, it's either bad design in the cabinet itself, or it could be bad design in terms of where the plumbing lines were put. You know, you didn't think about it ahead of time, or the plumber didn't think about to ask you ahead of time, what type of uh, vanity cabinet are you going to put in here? Are you putting one with drawers in and where are the drawers going to be so that he can move the plumbing lines to a position where they're not going to interfere with the drawers? Uh, what ends up happening? Well, you have to usually you have to modify the drawers and you know cut them short or, or whatever in order to be able to get that cabinet to fit. Uh, doors are another another one that that I like to look at. Um, you know, the gaps around the doors, if they're too small, you run into a similar problem as you do with the piston fit drawers, uh, where the door of the cabinet just won't open when it swells up in the in the uh, humid summer. Uh, and I had that problem with my chimney cupboard. Uh, you know, the doors fit perfectly. In fact, they fit perfectly um, year round when I was in New Jersey and my shop was in a climate controlled space. When I moved uh, here to Virginia, I had the cabinet out in uh, in a shed above ground, and it worked okay in, in that part of the shop. Then, when I went and moved my shop to the basement of the new cabin, there's a lot more humidity down there, and the cabinet absorbed a lot more humidity, and the doors expanded. And they expanded to the point where I couldn't open them. And once I could finally get them open, I couldn't close them again. So I had to take the doors off the uh, cabinet and plane them down a little bit so that they would then fit in their new environment. And now they, now they fit just fine. But something you need to think about, you know, designing design-wise, um, is there going to be an issue with this? Is the piece going to, uh, you know, am I building this piece in Arizona and uh, and shipping it to Florida? Things you have to you have to think about from a design perspective. Um, another one is uh, is the design of the cabinet door itself. Kitchen cabinets are notorious for this. Just go into any kitchen showroom and you'll see tons of examples of this uh, where they pay no attention to the grain direction whatsoever. So you'll have um, rails and styles, the frame pieces of the cabinet door might be made with the wildest cathedral grain stuff you'll ever find. Um, and it just looks so chaotic when you look at it. Um, and the, the panels, the raised panels or the door panels themselves might be glued up from five or six little one, you know, two, one or two inch wide boards. And the whole door looks completely chaotic. There's no thought that goes into actually the design of, 
uh, the grain, designing the grain of that cabinet door. Um, we had some some cherry cabinets back in our our house in New Jersey. They were you know just commercial cabinets from one of the big box stores, and uh, and they were you know I could walk around the kitchen and find it, and it always bugged me you know, but I wasn't going to make the those cabinets so. Um, you know, but you, you'd look and one door wouldn't be too bad. You know, they color matched and grain matched the, uh, the panels in the door frame in the door panel, the, the boards, sorry, let me start that again. They color and grain matched the boards in the panel of the door. Um, they did a pretty good job with that. And again, probably not intentionally, probably just the way that it worked out, but the panel wasn't too bad. And then the door right next to it, the, the two inch wide boards that made up that panel, Maybe there were four or five of them, um, and they were all different colors. They were all different grain patterns. They were just a mess. Um, and again, the cathedral grain in the uh, the wild cathedral grain in the rails and styles of the doors really just I mean it made everything look really really chaotic. Um, you know when I design cabinet doors, I always try to put rifts on or quarter sawn boards for my rails and styles. I want the straightest grain I can get in the rails and styles. And then I save the cathedral grain for the, the door panels. And I try to make up those panels. If I can do a single board panel, that's my preference is to do a single board panel. If I can't, uh, I try not to do any more but a two or three board glue up for the panels. Um, and I find it's important to do the best grain matches you can when making your panels and try and center your cathedral, maybe some straight grain on the outside of the panels uh, or, or angling grain sort of to kind of make it look like one board, you know, do the best that I can to make that panel look like a single board um, rather than the, the chaotic look of the, uh, uh, the panels, the boards that were just thrown together to make a panel in the, uh, in the cabinet factories. So lots of things, you know, if you're observant, you can learn from poorly designed furniture and cabinets. Just look around you and, and, and see, you know, how can you start with a design like that and make it better? What is it about that particular thing that just doesn't work? And what can you do to, to make it better? Um, and you know, there's lots of things that we can learn and apply to the pieces that we build from uh, all of this commercial stuff, um, you know, Sometimes it's what not to do. Sometimes it's, hey, that's actually a pretty good idea. That works pretty well. I'm going to I'm going to make a mental note of that or, you know, take a picture of it or write it down, you know, in the notes in my notebook or whatever, you know, just to, to keep that in mind for next time I'm building something like that. So, you know, just because furniture is uh, is commercially made doesn't mean it's all bad. You know, you can gain some some decent ideas from it. Um, but I think more often than not. Uh, you know, we'll look at it and see, you know, what not to do or how can we use the flaws in those pieces to make our stuff better. So that is going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I am extremely grateful for all the support that you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfindwoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 
3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com htt054. In the show notes, you can find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in a monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.